This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. So my guest today is David Wallace-Wells. David is a columnist and the deputy editor at New York Magazine, He's been a national fellow at the New America Foundation and was previously the deputy editor of the Paris Review. His book, The Uninhabitable Earth, was a critically acclaimed number one New York Times bestseller. The paperback edition was released this March with a new afterword. It's a terrifying, impassioned, beautifully written and necessary book. The subtitle of David's book is Life After Warming, and today we talk about climate change, what lies ahead, and how we can take responsibility for our future and the future of this planet. If we don't take the opportunity to stop it in real time, the planet is going to be transformed, not just you know dramatically and in ways that increase human suffering, but in ways that will reverberate for millions of years. Let's get to my conversation. Thank you for writing the world's most depressing book. <laughs> and two, I'm glad we're prescient enough to write about, as part of it, pandemics, right? Like, isn't that, that comes near the end of the book? Yeah, it's crazy. I, I feel guess. like in a certain way, I was I was just downloading the wisdom of so many people who've done all this amazing, you know, scientific research. But I find myself over the last year and a half so many times being like, Oh, wait, I think I predicted this in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Which means you made it happen. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's true. I mean, I know you talk about the Black Death and you talk about the remnants of the 1918 flu and killed as many as 50 million. And and I had this conversation with, oh, I can't remember his name, but he's amazing. And, and he's one of the leaders in the in this movement. And he was saying climate change is a complete disaster and we're all screwed 
But what will probably kill us all first is as the permafrost melts, who knows what will be released. (laughs) And I was like, that's even more terrifying. I hope everyone's listening to this episode right before bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, my my feeling is the diseases released from the permafrost are probably not going to be like that threatening in the sense of they're not going to produce something like COVID-19 because the, the amounts of disease that are likely to be released from that thawing are just, it's pretty small. They're probably going to produce some pockets of infection. There've been a couple of cases already of people being infected and even dying of ancient diseases, which is to say diseases that literally predate the human animal being you know released from this climate change driven thawing. But I don't think we're going to produce, they're going to produce pandemics like this one, but destruction of natural ecosystems and habitats and development of previously undeveloped areas, which brings people into contact with animals they've never been into contact with before and viruses. That, all of that, which is sort of part and parcel with climate change, is very much going to produce pandemics like this, probably more of them than we've ever seen. And then we have a kind of a, we have an idea that like pandemics are pre-modern, but they're actually sort of produced by globalization and development because when we were living, you know, in our little hunter-gatherer tribes, like a disease could wipe a little group of people out, but it couldn't be spread around this world in the same way that it is today. No, it's so true. I mean, when you think about, and I know I'm just going to take you on a little like goop la-di-da path here, but when you think about COVID, and I know that your book is sort of grounded in the research and, and the compilation of sort of all of the incredible climate science out there, but when you think about something like COVID and what's happening in terms of the social justice movement, do you feel like in in contemplating the earth and thinking about how dramatically we've swung out of balance, do you feel like there's a spiritual component to this? Or are you sort of of the mind of like stuff like this is bound to happen because of precisely what you just said? And maybe it's both. I wouldn't talk about it in spiritual terms, but um, that's really more like that's like for semantic reasons more than anything else. I do think the dynamic that you're describing is exactly right. That like for a few centuries, first in a tiny corner of the world in Western Europe, and then increasingly, especially over the last 30 years, everywhere in the world, we have been really destructive to our home and destabilizing the planet that we, that raised us, on which we have depended for all of human history. I mean, it's interesting to me because, you know, I'm somebody who I come to the subject. I'm not a lifelong environmentalist at all. I'm, I'm a lifelong New Yorker who sort of came of age in the 1990s and, you know, drank a lot of that sort of development like globalization, neoliberal Kool-Aid and really felt the world was getting better and richer. And that progress was imperfect, but it was also definitely progress that was happening. And climate change has scrambled a lot of those assumptions for me. I still am sort of temperamentally who I am. Like I'm not a nature lover. I'm not like outwardly visible environmentalist in that way. But I realized it was a kind of astounding shock to me to realize that, you know, the planet is already hotter than it has ever been in the entire history of human civilization, which means that we've already exited the window of temperatures that enclose everything that we have ever known as a species. So when you think about how we've developed a culture, how we've developed agriculture, our politics, the way that we relate to one another, our emotional lives, cultural history, literary history, all that stuff, 
all of that was developed under climate conditions that we've already left behind. And while I used to think as again, like a stereotyped, like well-off New Yorker, I used to think that like I lived outside of nature and that my life was conducted independent from it, except when I happened to like go on vacation occasionally. The more that I realize, the more that I learn about the, you know, the science, the more I understand that absolutely everything that takes place on this planet is dependent on nature. We live within nature, we're subject to its forces. And the pandemic teaches us just like climate change does that like when we behave badly as house guests here, nature will punish us. And part of that is natural, you know, like the climate does change and that's how it readjusts and responds. Same with the pandemics. Some of that is natural, but that doesn't mean that it isn't terrifying and regrettable and that we shouldn't do everything we can to bring things back into balance. And, you know, again, I don't, I don't think of those, that in spiritual terms, but if somebody else were to interpret it that way, you know, I certainly wouldn't argue with them. Yeah. No, I mean, I thought like this stat alone was so staggering. You write 22% of the Earth's landmass was altered by humans just between 1992 and 2015. 96% of the world's mammals by weight are not humans, they're livestock, and just 4% of our animals are wild. We have simply crowded or bullied or brutalized every other species into retreat, near extinction, or worse. And that's staggering to me, too, because like you, I think we're, I might be a few years ahead of you, but I grew up at a time, my mom was really completely transfixed by climate change. And I was like, oh, you're crazy and delusional. And like, everything's fine. Look around. It's all fine. And I sort of assumed, you know, oh, rivers used to be on fire. Like we have made tremendous progress. And in some places we certainly have. But I totally missed, you know, it just it just was happening without any awareness, I think, that we were actually the ones who were participating and perpetuating it. I think in my mind, I was like, oh, this is like an industrial revolution cleanup, which is delusional. Well, I think that's how most of us were sort of taught to think of it over the last few decades, that it was the legacy of that project. And when, you know, if I'm sitting in like a high school classroom in the 1990s and I'm thinking about, you know, balancing on the one hand the, the benefits of um, industrialization with the, bene- with the cost, the environmental costs... I'm thinking, I think this has been like on net a decent deal for the world. Like, and I think that's actually got in certain ways gotten more true over the last couple of decades because we've had seen hundreds of millions of people pulled out of extreme poverty, mostly by the force of industrialization. But I think yeah. we also fool ourselves into thinking that it's that that long story because, you know, as I write in the book, half of all of the carbon emissions that have ever been produced in the entire history of humanity from the burning of fossil fuels have come in the last 30 years, which that's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's like since the UN established its big climate change body. You know, this is like, this is it's since I've, I've been alive, you know, it's like since 1992. And that means that we have brought the planet from basically a stable situation to really the brink of catastrophe when it comes to climate change in my own memory, in the space of 30 years. Yeah. And even over the last, even in shorter timescales, you know, the, the data is astonishing. It's like we've done a quarter of all the damage since the release of the first iPhone 
this is an incredibly rapid project that we're engaged in. And it's not like, oh, we just haven't gotten around to addressing the problems that were like introduced by the coal burning in England in 1780. Um, it is like happening in real time. And if we don't take the opportunity to stop it in real time, the planet is going to be transformed, not just, you know, dramatically and in ways that increase human suffering, but in ways that will reverberate for millions of years. And this is one of the kind of mind bending aspects of the whole problem, which is like, on the one hand, we've done this damage as a single generation. And we now have only about the length of a single generation, like another 30 years to really change course to avoid some of these truly terrible scenarios. But if we miss that opportunity, the planet will forever after be determined, it will be shaped, it will be, and human life on it will be dominated by what climate change means. And I'm not somebody who thinks, you know, humans are going to go extinct. I don't think there's any, or civilization is going to collapse for that matter. But if you take seriously the science, you know, I think right now we have the kind of a best case scenario is that we stop warming at about two degrees Celsius of warming, warmer than it was during the pre-industrial age. And at two degrees, you're talking about 150 million people dying of air pollution. You're talking about parts of the planet that are today home to one and a half billion people, literally uninhabitable according to the standards of human history. You're talking about storm events, flooding, that kind of thing that used to happen once a century happening every single year. The UN says you could expect hundreds of millions of climate refugees. You know, cities in, in South Asia and the Middle East are going to be so hot that walking around in summer would risk heat stroke or possibly heat death. And that is a level of transformation, again, that this is what science tells us to expect in a best case scenario. So I think we will adapt. Humans are incredibly adaptable and resilient. But if we're like scrambling to try to engineer a way to live comfortably on that planet, it's just going to be really preoccupying. <laughs> It'll be like the project of our century to make that happen. And, you know, like I said, I think to some degree we will, but it's not something that we had to do. If we had changed course a little earlier or a little more aggressively, we could have avoided a lot of that suffering and a lot of that necessary adaptation. And unfortunately, we've just been a little too blind and short-sighted and kind of politically lackadaisical yeah, yeah we've had no political will i mean as you say like if we had started the to do global decarbonization when al gore lost the election if he even lost it we would have had to cut emissions by three percent and today it's ten percent and if we wait a decade it will require thirty percent and i also think you know one of the things that i loved about your book is that you know this the save the planet campaign I think misses the mark in the sense that like we're all so uniquely engineered to prioritize our own safety and to not really be like on the whole that empathetic. The planet is going to be fine. Like we're the ones who are not. So it's, you know, you write, this goes beyond thinking like a planet because the planet will survive however terribly we poison it. It is thinking like a people, one people whose fate is shared by all. And that's true, but it's also interesting just sort of in the context of of what's happening too with 
Black Lives Matter and all of these conversations about the systemic racism in our culture and how we're going to dismantle it because environmental racism is a profound play in this. And as you said, it's like it's people in India, the people who are not creating this in the first place, who have no who don't have the tools, they don't have the levers to pull because they're not the ones producing it who are going to suffer first. So it's profoundly unfair. That injustice is true at every level. You know, it's it's the nations of the world who are poorest and who have done least who are going to suffer most. It's within countries, it's regions that are poorest and have done the least who are going to suffer the most. And even like within cities, it's neighborhoods because so many times it's the poorest who are forced to live next to say, you know, a, a power plant or a chemical plant. And that's one of the great challenges of trying to fix this thing is like the most powerful people in the world will suffer to some degree from dramatic climate change, but they're going to suffer a lot less than the least powerful people in the world. And we need to, you know, we need to develop um, political energy and political systems that don't allow that power imbalance to determine the shape of our response. And I think we, we're, we're making a lot of progress there, actually. I, you know, environmental justice is a much bigger part of the environmental movement, the climate movement in general than it was a few years ago. And at the international level, too, there's a lot of talk around these, these issues. But it's, we're still at the sort of you know, advocacy, agitation, theoretical stage of a lot of this. Basically, no country in the world is, is meaningfully reducing their carbon emissions. So when the rubber hits the road, we'll see how real those commitments to social justice and climate equity really are. I, I, worry, I worry a lot that the response, especially in places like the US, will be sufficient to make sure that the country's wealthiest are relatively safe but will leave not just the country's poorest, but many people elsewhere in the world, leave them very, very vulnerable. And I think we see that playing out already in the way that, you know, Americans, we're not talking about the spread of COVID in Latin America. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're not talking about the crisis that the disease is causing in India. We're talking about this pandemic as though it's like a peculiarly American tragedy. And it is that, I mean, you know, America has done worse than any of its peer countries. It's the only wealthy country in the world that rather than declining after it reached a plateau has has started to go up again in terms of caseloads. But the real cost is going to be borne as all of these things are by the world's poorest. And we're doing nothing as Americans. We're doing absolutely nothing to try to protect those people. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. 
To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Do you have a hunch about why COVID is decimating us? Do you think it's just people's refusal to sort of practice what Fauci is preaching? Or is it our predilection for all the comorbidities and lack of upstream healthcare? Like, do you have a feeling about what's what's really happening here? Well, I think it's a really complicated challenge that the world as a whole failed at at first. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Like the US has mounted no federal coronavirus response at all. They've done, they've actually at the federal level gotten in the way of a lot of governors and mayors who've tried to take action. But the initial American response was not all that dissimilar from most of our peer countries. And I think, you know, that's why Italy got hit so hard. It's why the UK got hit so hard. Um, it's why, you know, even Germany, which has done a relatively good job, also had a, you know, a problem. And that's, I think, all of that together is a sign of like civilizational hubris that the West saw an outbreak in China and attributed it to cultural backwardness and saw the lockdown in Wuhan as a sign of China's natural authoritarianism, not as a measure of just how scary this disease was. And we didn't choose to learn from the early immediate responses of other Asian nations who had more respect for China and understood what they were dealing with and responded really rapidly as a result. We didn't advise people to wear masks. We didn't um, suggest real social distancing. We didn't do anything really until the disease had already arrived in America and done quite a lot of damage in a few places. And I think that that's a kind of distressing lesson about the West in general is that no country has been able to preemptively, was able to preemptively plan to protect its citizens against this disease in the way that say, you know, Taiwan, Japan were able to. But the real, the thing that distinguishes the US is that we didn't then learn from ourselves. (laughs) Like... (laughs) All the countries in Europe had this bad outbreak and then they turned it around and there was the social guidelines were adhered to and people actually went out and got tested and people wore masks. And in America, we've had a much more complicated second wave response. A lot of that has to do with, you know, the unfortunate partisan tribalization of our country such that something like mask wearing became a partisan issue. But part of it is I think just similar kind of hubris, which is that like, if you were in Florida or Texas or Arizona, and you were looking at what was happening in New York, or even to a lesser degree, in Massachusetts or California, you were just like, those crazy blue states, (laughs) they're they're creating their own problems. That's not that's not going to happen here. Yeah. And this refusal to learn (laughs) from the experience of even Americans is really distressing. And, you know, ultimately, I do think a lot of that is at the feet of the president who, you know, has been literally not interested in mounting a federal response. And a lot of the things that you'd want to see a country do, like really ramping up in the manufacture of PPE or testing or even like making a national mask guideline, 
they just weren't willing to do. And, and governors simply don't have the power to do a lot of that. But I actually think an underappreciated part of the American story is that we were unwilling and to a certain degree are still unwilling to talk and plan about this disease as one that poses a really varied risk to different people and different communities. We, our public health officials wanted to make, wanted to give universal guidance at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. And the truth is the vulnerability of an 85-year-old is like 100 times or more what the vulnerability of a 30-something is. And we have, we've got some sense of that early on about the age skew, but we basically, were, the messaging was only sophisticated enough to say, here's one set of guidelines if you are young and healthy, and here's another set of guidelines if you are either elderly or have a comorbidity. But the difference between, say, a 75-year-old and an 85-year-old is like fourfold. An 85-year-old is like four time, at four times higher risk than a 75-year-old, who's like 10 times more risk than a 65-year-old. And even between the comorbidities, if you're a kidney patient, you have like four times more risk than a cancer patient. And there was really no guidance or messaging about that at all, at any level. And there was really very little protection done of the country's most vulnerable people, according to all of those metrics, such that something like roughly half of all of the deaths that we've seen in America were in nursing homes. Now, that problem could have been solved really easily. We knew as soon as the first data was coming out of China that the old and sick were incredibly vulnerable. We could have like, sent public health officials and a lot of PPE and testing to all of the country's nursing homes. We didn't need to solve the problem at a national level. If we had solved it even just at that level, protecting those, you know, something like a couple hundred thousand people in a few thousand facilities across the country. That would have been an incredibly easy measure to take that would have saved, at this point, literally 70,000 lives. Yeah. I don't exactly know why we did that, <laughs> why we didn't do that, but we did things that were, at the time, even worse. We, Because hospitals were so worried about reaching their capacity, which, by the way, is now happening in Arizona and Texas and Florida. And in Arizona, they've even activated the state's what are called crisis care standards so that they can triage patients and decide not to treat people who are likely to die anyway so that they can focus their attention on those who they have a better chance of saving, which is horrifying. But we were so worried about that happening in the spring that we were discharging elderly COVID patients back into nursing homes without any special guidance or protection. So we weren't just not protecting the vulnerable populations. We were basically seeding those pandemic outbreaks all across the country. And to some degree, the differential death totals are explained by, you know, in New York, we suspended liability for nursing home care, which meant that nobody is going to face any criminal or civil you know, they're not going to have to face, have to shoulder any civil or, or criminal responsibility for how poorly they protected their patients. Whereas in California, that was not done. And that's one significant reason why the outbreak was much in terms of death total, 
at first much much lighter in California. So I think it's I think it's a really complicated policy problem, and we're dealing with at least a federal government that is not interested in policy nuance and marshalling the power of the state to protect people. At the state level, we've had more governors taking more aggressive action, but you know the disease is evolving. There are things we're learning on the fly that we didn't know. And in general, like trying to fight a pandemic like this is is really, really hard. I mentioned to you before we started recording that in terms of death toll per, per million, in terms of per capita death toll, the US actually isn't doing that bad compared to its peer countries in Europe. Germany is doing a little bit better, but basically all the other countries of Europe are bundled with the US. At the moment, what's really distressing and scary is that we've done such a bad job of suppressing the disease. So it's still spreading quite dramatically. And that means that we're likely to see considerably more dying in the months ahead. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, this was at the onset of COVID. It's sort of, again, it goes back to, for whatever reason, other countries seem to be more bought in to this idea of solving problems upstream and not needing to understand the full extent. Like maybe they're just more bought into science. Maybe they're more bought into... They just There's a lot more trust. Yeah, there's a lot more trust. Both of the government end of one another. Yeah. So we struggle there mightily and it's reflected in sort of all parts of our society. And so it was interesting with COVID because at the beginning and certainly when you know Cuomo and Newsom were sort of locking it down it was sort of a damned if you do and damned if you don't moment right because people were really upset about the economic pain that it would cause so you're sort of it's like if no one if this doesn't become a huge issue what was the price and then on the flip side if this does what's the price and now we have sort of the worst of both right and i wonder though in the context of climate change and maybe this is wishful thinking but or silver lining thinking, but maybe we'll learn. Maybe from this experience, we will we'll actually start to we'll see something play out that could have been much less severe and start to understand that when we address these problems mightily and early and aggressively, and we're certainly not early on climate change, but that it doesn't have to look so bad. This might be kind of what we needed in order to grapple with some of the other massive things coming our way. Yeah. it's. I mean, the speed question is really fascinating because I think it's really important to keep in mind about climate in general, that it may not be early, but it's always earlier than it will be. <laughs> exactly. And similarly with COVID, it's like, yeah, so we we screwed it up in January and February by not doing anything. That doesn't mean that we can't make a difference now. And it doesn't mean that we can't make a difference in the fall. It's really important to keep that same frame in mind when thinking about climate. And, you know, in general, when I think about the, you know, the lessons of COVID for climate change, I can see it in quite dramatically divergent ways. I mean, one thing that's been really, really remarkable to me is we didn't do a lot, but we did collectively go into shelter-in-place lockdown, basically the entire country and indeed the entire Northern Hemisphere, just a few weeks after first learning about this disease, we suspended all of our social and romantic lives, our family lives. We shouldered this, uh, this intense economic burden, some people much more intensely than others, but nevertheless, like, decided to forego or endure quite a lot of economic suffering as a result in order to 
protect ourselves and one another. And it seems harder and harder to believe that that happened. The farther we go into the summer and the more fraught and charged the political debates about reopenings have become, it's like, how did we manage that? That wasn't that long ago. It is also, by the way, much more solidarity than I would have expected was possible. And I was at the time quite moved by it. Literally like a billion people stopped going to school across the world to protect themselves from this disease that we hadn't known about three months before. That is the kind of response that we need to deal with climate change, the sort of fundamental reordering of of our economy and culture. And I, I think it's also important to recognize a shift that is signaled by this experience, which is that like we used to think coming out of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but even through Clinton and Obama, you know, we used to have this pretty economics textbook idea of what the economy was, which is that it was, it only worked if it was uncontrollable, that it was like this autonomous, messy beast. And we actually like sort of just like hit pause on a bunch of sectors, but not all sectors. We like figured out how to keep our supply chains running so that like food was around and the essential goods were transmitted around the world. We sort of figured out how to treat the economy in a much more directed way without destroying it. And I mean, there was, you know, huge recession level declines in GDP, but that was by design. And I think that there will be a shift going forward where people are more comfortable with the idea of designing the economy towards a particular goal, such as addressing climate change. That's all very much to the good. On the Mm -hmm. downside, that like honeymoon period just lasted a couple months. And we now seem, especially in America, just exhausted. And in a lot of parts of the country, unwilling to do anything to protect each other Um, And I worry that the kind of long haul project of mitigating climate change and adapting to what we can't stop may be sort of beyond our beyond our appetite or beyond our our capacity to really, you know, respond to. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. I think we're all, you know, I, there's a lot of maybe wishful thinking, maybe valid thinking, too, and hoping that somehow this global pause has done dramatic things for the environment. It might be that we're just so much quieter that we're actually seeing more birds and butterflies that we were too busy to notice before. But is there any upside in terms of climate just from this? Or I know individual action is kind of a tiny sliver of of what needs to be done, but certainly, or, may, or maybe there's not, is, is there any yeah. <laughs> environmental upside? 
Well, you know, there are a few different ways of answering the question. The short, the, the short version is that, you know, emissions are going to decline by more than they have ever declined in the history of emissions. Like there's going to be a bigger decline than there was in 2008, 2009. There's going to be a bigger decline than there was when, during the collapse of the Soviet Union. These are the, the sort of major events, the, the only other times, I think, in, in industrial history where global emissions have gone down. This year, there's going to be a much bigger drop. It's probably going to be about 7 or 10% of global emissions when all is said and done because of the suspension of economic activity. That makes a difference, but carbon emissions are cumulative. You know, Carbon hangs in the atmosphere for hundreds of years, which means one year's emissions don't make all that much difference. And according to you know the UN IPCC, in order to avoid catastrophic level of warming, we need to cut global emissions by about 10% every year between now and 2030. And that means that we would have to reduce our emissions by as much as this pandemic did every single year going forward. And so I think what that tells you is that like we will not tolerate emissions reductions coming just from a reduction of consumption and industrial production because we're not going to tolerate this amount of economic suffering going forward. We need to figure out a way to cut our emissions without imposing like a 10% decline in GDP across the board. There is some political value in, I think, the way that the environment has briefly cleared in the sense that like, you know, Delhi's air quality improved from something like on an average day having 400, 500, air quality index of 400 or 500, which is like 20 times what the EPA would recommend to something well below the EPA level. So like a person who was living in Delhi, who is, you know, really choking on the air, the air, the air is so thick there that they don't just frequently cancel air travel. They've canceled trains coming in and out of Delhi because the trains couldn't see well enough. These are trains that are traveling on a track. That's how thick the air is with air pollution there. And that air pollution, you know, produces lung disease and coronary disease and respiratory disease, blah, 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 cognitive problems too. That, that whole city all of a sudden woke up to like, like they were living in, you know, Jackson Hole. And they had this like pristine blue sky. And I think that that, you know, that's not to say that, you know, the government of India or even the city of Delhi is going to respond to this by saying, okay, we immediately need to like freeze in these gains and make sure that the air pollution never reaches the levels it did before. But I think it does teach the population in general that the level of air pollution is the result of choices, which the city is making every day. And it can make different choices too. It may not get the air all the way down to you know an air quality index of like 20, but if it cuts it from 500 to 200, that's still like an enormous gain. And yeah. I think that kind of experience really was unfolding all around the world during the pandemic. We'll see what it means for policy and how industrial activity is, is transformed going forward. I think China's already rebounded to where their emissions were going to be before the pandemic started. A lot of countries in Europe have announced their intention to do the same. So we'll see. But I think it does teach us that, which is a very important lesson for us all to think, you know, we often intuit that the world is unchangeable. And I think that among other things, the pandemic taught us, it is that many things that we thought were permanent features, unmovable, unshakable features of modern life are in fact quite contingent and can shift quite rapidly if we if we choose to. So what are, you know, you list like carbon tax, I love that idea, the political apparatus to 
aggressively phase out dirty energy, a new approach to agricultural practices, and a shift away from beef and dairy in the global diet, and public investment in green energy and carbon capture. And if you were president in a few months, yeah. it could happen. What would you What would you want to see sort of first? What do you think? Would What do you think are biggest, fastest measures here? Well. The most important thing at the global level, not just at the national level, is to end fossil fuel subsidies. The IMF, which is you know no lefty fringe environmental organization, they estimate that globally the fossil fuel business is being subsidized by $5.3 trillion every year, which is so much money that economists believe that if even just a fraction of it, like 10 or 15%, were redirected as subsidies to green energy, we would shepherd in a kind of immediate green energy revolution, which would then pay us back quite rapidly so that our growth would be more rapid within a decade. So I think globally, we need to stop supporting fossil fuel businesses, which are in many cases losing money, they would not be in business without those subsidies. And even when they are surviving, would be surviving on their own terms, it's in now two thirds of the world, it's more expensive to run existing dirty fossil fuel energy infrastructure than it is to build new renewable energy capacity. So we need to just do whatever we can to accelerate that transition. In the US, the thing beyond ending those subsidies, I think the most important thing we can do to spur global change is to make major investments in R&D on these points. And that is actually what happened with in the stimulus bill in 2009. They sort of snuck in an investment in green energy R&D, which spurred this incredibly rapid progress in that technology, which meant that the price of renewables has fallen much more rapidly than anybody even thought possible a decade ago. And that's why now in two thirds of the world, it's cheaper than dirty energy. We need to do more of that to make that kind of cost comparison more unmissable for policymakers all around the world. And I think the US does have a kind of a, you know, they have a, we have a moral obligation because we're responsible for the lion's share of historical emissions. But we also are a country with a history of really important technological innovation. And we need to do what we can to accelerate that on green energy in particular, and then to distribute, you do what we can to see that that technology is distributed around the world, as was the case when, you know, the Solar energy companies sort of withdrew their intellectual property claims on their technology so that India could just like copy their tech a few years ago. You know, beyond that, there are, there are really, as you sort of insinuated, suggested with that list, there are challenges like everywhere you look in the modern world, everything you do as a relatively well-off person in the West has a carbon footprint and every single one of those activities needs to be cleaned of carbon. I think this is something that most people don't really appreciate. But in order to stabilize the planet's climate at any temperature level, even a quite hellish temperature level, requires us not just to reduce our emissions, but to get them all the way to zero. Because if we're still producing even just a fraction of the carbon we're producing today, 50 years from now, the planet's still going to be getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Yeah. In order, in order to get all the way to zero, like we need to change everything. But that means, I think, fundamentally, culturally and politically, reorienting our world around the goal of decarbonizing and adapting to the changes that we know are going to be coming our way. But I would, I mean, I, yeah, I would start with the end of fossil fuel subsidies and investment in, in uh, green energy R&D. Are there any fantasy 
Superman technologies out there that are just going to come and sort of hoover carbon out of the atmosphere? Like, is there is there ever is there an idea is there a concept of something like or is that just the sort of thinking that screws us because we're like, oh, we'll we'll develop something at some point that will just fix this all? Well, that technology isn't just a fantasy. It exists. And I mean, I would say, first of all, like the we have a great ancient technology, which is trees. To trees, take, right. <laughs> take, uh, take carbon <laughs> out of the atmosphere and produce oxygen. And, and one of the real tragedies of recent climate change is that we're actually, in many parts of the world, reducing the capacity of some of our most prolific forests to to do that, to perform that function. But there is also the kind of high-tech version, which is machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere and do a variety of things with it. Some You can store it underground, you can turn it into zero-carbon jet fuel. These machines exist. They're not built out at anything like the scale that we need, but they, they are proven to work and they're not even that expensive. You can You can suck carbon out of the air using existing technology for about $100 a ton, which means that we could, in theory, totally neutralize all of the carbon that we are putting into the atmosphere today in the entire planet. Simply like we have our economy and industry acting exactly as it is, but would not be adding any carbon at all to the atmosphere for a total cost of about $3 trillion a year. Now, you remember earlier I said that the IMF thinks that we're subsidizing the global fossil fuel business $5.3 trillion a year. So in theory, for less that money- That math than- sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are huge complications with this. Like It's just at a laboratory stage. It would need to take up huge parcels of land. We would need to have some pla- something to do with the, with the stored carbon. But even in scenarios where we're looking at really, really rapid decarbonization, like the, the IPCC's preferred path of cutting in half our emissions by 2030. They say that in order to avoid catastrophic warming, we would need to not only cut in half our emissions, we would also need to build out this carbon capture technology so rapidly that just by 2030, this industry, carbon carbon capture, would be at least twice as big and perhaps four times as big as today's oil and gas business, which took 150 years to build and was built out of profits because at the moment there's no market for carbon capture. So we have the technology, probably that price will continue to fall and there may develop some mark. I know some people who are developing, you know, like a kind of a, you want to buy your, a carbon offset for your ticket from New York to LA. You could do that this way and it would just cost about 10 bucks, which is not all that much, probably something that most people buying that ticket wouldn't even notice. So there, there is some effort to sort of build this technology out so it can actually, you know, it can actually help us. But in general, you know, if you're talking about building a, glo- a new global energy infrastructure in the space of just 10 years, that's really, really going to be quite hard. And I think more generally to your question, I think that we have this idea it maybe comes to us because of you know how we saw the proliferation of the internet or the smartphone that like once technology exists you can just snap your fingers and it's everywhere and there are some technologies like that like instagram or something like spread very rapidly because it's a non-material technology but when you're talking about huge plantations of machines manufactured at great cost that have to occupy land sitting next to people's homes and then you need to like 
put the waste from that production somewhere and you may be needing something like, you know, 10% of the world's land to do it. It's not something that you can do in the timeline that we have. It will carbon capture I think will be a part of how we solve this problem. But if we're counting on it to be all of it, we're simply not going to be able to roll out that technology and that infrastructure fast enough to meaningfully reduce our risk of of really, really grim climate outcomes. But you sound, do you feel optimistic? I know we're out of time, but on the whole, are you... You know, I always say it's like a question of perspective. So if you want to freeze the planet's climate where it is today, where it's already hotter than we've ever been in all of human history, and we're already seeing Houston hit by five 500-year storms in five years, and we're seeing unprecedented rains in Japan, millions of people being evacuated every year, hurricane after hurricane in the Caribbean, wildfires that are, you know, five times what they were in the 70s in California and probably worse in Australia. If you want to, like stall the planet's climate that is that degraded today's climate there's no hope it's going to get considerably worse from here and the damages are going to grow quite rapidly from here but i like to try to establish a baseline of like it's not what i wish we could do it's where we are headed if we don't do anything and right. off of that baseline we're already doing a lot. We're going to be doing a lot more. And yeah, I think, you know, even when I wrote the book, I thought it was quite plausible that we'd be looking at something like four to five degrees of warming this century. I think even given the progress that's been made over the last year in technology, in the market, energy markets, and especially on politics and policy, I don't think it's likely that we end up north of three degrees. I think it's likely that we end up somewhere between two and two and a half degrees. So we're making really rapid progress. The problem is, the timeline is really short and the progress we're not we're making is not nearly enough. Right. So I'm you know I'm I'm optimistic because I think we're doing a lot better than a worst case scenario, but I think too many people have a set of expectations based on their experience of the present day climate that is just hopelessly, you know, there's no hope for that being sustained. Well, I for one thought I was going to be even more depressed. I do feel better. I know that that just based on talking to you, I thought I thought I was going to spend the rest of the de- day in bed recovering from our conversation because your book is so sobering. I'm going to take it. Well, thank you. I'll let you open your door and get back to the birds dripping. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Wallace Wells. I urge you to read his book, The Uninhabitable Earth. It's challenging, but also stunning and compelling. And of course, incredibly important. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>